You know, where John Kenneth Galbraith, an athlete, you'd say he's a multiple threat man. But since he's a distinguished economist and writes in a very salubrious style and was former ambassador to India and professor emeritus at Harvard, he has many strings in his bow without being an athlete. Indeed, he's one of our most distinguished, I'd say, perceptive and witty observers of the human comedy. And his most recent book, the one now, will, is called The Anatomy of Power. And there's one theme that has hardly been touched, though been written about much. It is the subject of power, ability to have someone submit to your will. And this is The Anatomy of Power. And it's published by Houghton Mifflin and available in a moment, my guest, Ken Galbraith, after this message. I was thinking just hearing the opening passages, the fragments of this Pentecostal song in a southern black storefront church, and the word was power. And a whole aspect of the subject which I didn't treat in my book. Well, you do touch on <laughs> the early days of the word when, when the church was all-powerful and the ability of the church to maintain. I'm very much concerned, actually, with Martin Luther King because uh, this is a form of power uh, derived in turn from Gandhi, which is, uh, has been very effective in modern times and uh, very little uh, commented upon. The oldest word about power is you <clears throat> meet power with power. You meet force with force. Uh, you meet uh, uh, military power with military power. You meet strength with strength. And uh, power that we just heard was at its strongest when it was, uh, as I say somewhere in the book, asymmetrical. Yeah. Uh, when military power was met by nonviolence. Yeah when the police power was met by nonviolence. If the people on the Selma March had uh, reacted uh, with uh, the same methods that the police used, they would, of course, yeah. uh, been defeated in a, in a few hours. So it's used in a wholly different way, uh, not the expected way. Not the expected way, force. and also, that in the, as in the case of Gandhi, you face the... Uh, uh, <clears throat> the larger community, the governing community, the, the power structure, mm. with their own standards. Isn't that funny? You just used the word, Ken Galbraith, power structure. That word power appears in our vocabulary in, in our lives in so many <clears throat> ways without our being aware of it. Well, this is what got me. Uh, yeah. One of the things that uh, caused me to be interested in this, uh, in this book uh, which I, I suppose I took uh, the better part of three years working on it, off and on, the longest time for the shortest book in my history and my experience, uh, to see what, what, what lies behind uh, the everyday reference to power, what lies back yeah. of it. And so yours is an anatomy of power. And uh, to keep and it down to the, to, as much as possible, to the hard yeah. skeletal structure. Now we know that many books about power are a marvelous one by C. Wright Mills and the power elite. <laughs> That's a classic, it's yes. A classic, and, and Veblen talks about power, ridiculing those who have it in a way. But 
You're the first anatomy of it. So there are three, let's start as though it were a body. Okay, there, there are three basic kinds of power. There are three sources of sources, power. Sources, I should say. All power, I think one can say, goes back to three sources, to, the, to personality, to what Weber called the charismatic leader, the person to whom others naturally submit, yearn in some cases to submit. Then, of course, uh, there's property, disposable income, uh, money. Uh, I, I put that under the general heading of property. And then the third, which is the most important in our time, is uh, organization. Uh, the uh, great corporation, the trade union, the massive apparatus of the modern state, uh, the military power, to which I give some concerned attention, mm -hmm. are all manifestations of great organization. Well, it's interesting you point out, before we come to three kinds of power, uh, that some things happen, the personality has been submerged to organization. We, you see, the industrialists of the past were known, people we knew, J.P. Morgan, John D., Carnegie. Today, the many faceless because of organization. You know, no one uh, no longer knows really the name of the head of IBM or General Motors uh, outside the business or uh, U.S. Steel. Everybody was at one time aware of the name of Carnegie or Frick when they were head of the Steel Corporation. But uh, now this is the domain of the organization man. Well, we see it in the government. Uh, Nobody is so much a creator, creation of organization as the uh, head of a government department, uh, the Secretary of Defense. Uh, nobody uh, returns to such obscurity, which many will say is well-earned, well -earned. <laughs> as, uh, as a former Secretary of Defense. But just, uh, a, just a slight they, digression, <laughs> since this is you are of many worlds. Secretary of Defense, Department of Defense. Before World War II, we had Department of War a department of navy, and they could be challenged at times, you know. But who can challenge defense? Well, this was certainly a, a, a somatic change that uh, came in after World War II that was, uh, among other things, designed to make the whole idea of war slightly more agreeable. And so here's uh, the military, uh, then. This is one of the courses yeah. of the, uh, well, ideal at, at some length, and as I must say, with some, this is not a book. I made up my mind writing this book that I wasn't going to engage in any great uh, moral concern. I was going to analyze the subject, uh, uh, take it apart, but uh, I do find my, did find myself expressing a good deal of concern over the extent of the military power in our time. Should I say a word about oh, that? Oh, please do. Well, let me go back a, a bit. We have these three sources of power, personality, property, uh, organization. And the rule of three operates here to a, to a substantial extent, Studs, because we have uh, three instruments for the enforcing of power, more or, le more or less related to the sources. Uh, one of them uh, is what I call condign power, the ability to inflict punishment or threaten punishment. That was how, for example, the slaves were kept in line. Uh, it's how soldiers are kept in line. Uh, then there is compensation, what I call compensatory power. That is the ability to buy, to hire, uh, to get the submission of others, to win the submission of others through the promise of payment. 
carrying down on political matters on occasion to a discreet bribe. Yeah, that we, sort we'll of thing. hear a case of that as we go That along. sort of thing is never known in Chicago, but no, uh, we, we've had problems of that <laughs> sort in Boston from time to time. Uh-huh. And uh, then to condition power. The most interesting. Which is the, the least recognized and the most important. Uh, power that derives from the ability to persuade uh, somebody that this is virtuous, this is right, uh, this is the truth. Uh, power that uh, is based broadly on persuasion or education. Now that uh, Taking on from there, the military establishment in our time, one reason for, for being concerned about it, one reason for uh, being politically concerned about it, is that the military establishment in our time has two of the three instruments of uh, sources of power. Uh, personality isn't terribly important. Uh, nobody knows the names of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I venture the thought that uh, after Caspar Weinberger leaves uh, the Department of Defense, he will not be heard of until he gets those few inches of space in the New York Times, uh, which I hope will be some distance from now. Uh, I'm not wishing him any uh, early uh, obituary. And uh, uh, so we can dismiss personality. But the Pentagon deploys massive resources, uh, both for the services, for its own bureaucracy, uh, for the uh, corporations, and uh, for the captive scientists and politicians. On, on that point, you are right. That point is so on the button. Now, everybody watches on occasion the Sunday uh, Face the Nation or Meet the Press, this matter of conditioned power and military. Well, where are you going to make the cuts? They ask the political figure, and is it where in what social in what social area will you make the cuts? Social welfare. No one ever says where will you cut the military. That's a uh, given. That's, um, so that's the condition. Even even the most liberal politician yeah. uh, is very careful yeah. to say. Uh, uh, of course, I'm in favor of a strong of defense. That uh, he, that's an automatic statement. So, and well. Uh, you have the, the, the huge uh, financial resources of the military, and then going beyond that, you have uh, what in our time is the most nearly perfect organization, the best disciplined organization. The papers today have an account of a Pentagon whistleblower, somebody who found out that, uh, uh, or is alleged to have found out that uh, Pratt and Whitney uh, were uh, entertaining military officers and uh, sending uh, executives on trips to Europe and otherwise uh, enjoying themselves at the public expense. Well, it's, uh, there's an element of surprise that anybody in that organization should have the courage, the uh, uh, independence uh, to uh, spill the beans. Now, what will happen to that whistleblower? Well, he probably has now got enough attention uh, so that he'll be a little ticklish to handle. Mm. But uh, before he got the attention, they had uh, decided to ship him out to guess where, Los Angeles, uh, where he would be uh, uh, not noticed. So nobody, f- nobody has ever noticed in Los Angeles. Yeah, that's a form of condign power. <laughs> that's a genteel right. sort of condign. That's punitive. Uh, and there'll be a probably less... Com- compensation, so compensatory power perversely used would be there. That's right, yeah. But in any case, the, you have, going back to the point, you have 
uh, a massive deployment of financial resources, a huge, highly disciplined organization. And then when you get on to the, my second trinity, the instruments of power, you have what we've just mentioned, the ability to punish. This um, auditor uh, gets punished and sent to, to uh, Los Angeles. Uh, no punishment greater than that, we'd agree. And, <laughs> and then, or the military uh, has the uh, enormous power that is associated uh, with compensation, uh, with buying up corporations, uh, scientists, engineers, uh, policy. They, uh, uh, we might come back to that, uh, the basing of that ship along the East Coast. And it, of course, has the conditioned power which uh, takes refuge in patriotism, takes refuge in uh, the good natural instinct that one puts the, the national purpose above the individual purpose. So conditioned power, this all leads up to this aspect that is the most nebulous, at the same time the most powerful. There's a self, we, there's the illusion of power, that is the word free world is used. And therefore, we're free to say anything in contrast to a totalitarian power where the condign heaviness is there. But here's from the inside, isn't it? That is, as a self-censorship. Well, uh, I'm, I'm not suggesting that, uh, that the existence of military power is unique in the United States uh, for a moment. This is one of the great mm-hmm. facts of our time, one of the things that uh, uh, should be at the center mm-hmm. of our uh, human concern, it seems to me. Uh, I could be giving the wrong impression, Studs. I, uh, I use the military power as, a, as an example of the comprehensive combination of both the sources, the three sources of power, and the three instruments of power. But uh, they're all present. Yeah. Uh, the church is an example of these uh, various uh, manifestations of power. Well, also, the church we know also had condign power. That's punishment. We know that James Joyce, in portrait of an artist as a young man, was terrified as he was told of the hereafter and the horrible thing. So that's condign power. At the same time, there's compensatory power in what? In it'll be a good life. Well, <clears throat> they, there's the reward that uh, awaits one in heaven. And uh, in past and ancient times, the church had a certain amount of problems, a certain number of problems with. Uh, direct forms of uh, compensatory power, simony. And uh, the buying then, and selling. Uh, also, uh, the church in past times, and even in modern times, was a thing of enormous wealth. Uh, and there was no, could be no doubt that its lands, its abbeys, its uh, other possessions were a source of uh, submission to its power. And then, of course, a great basis of the power of the church has been conditioned power, uh, belief. Sunday services are, pers- are to persuade us that uh, uh, we are believers, and the highest praise that you can give a good Christian is to say that he's a true believer. So that uh, at, of all the manifestations of power, uh, the, uh, the church has been the most durable. I'm using the word yeah. church in the broadest That's possible right. term. So let's come to the 20th century kind of church, the organization. Now, that is almost religious, too, the organization. And who are the people in it who are powerful? Suppose we hear the voice of someone. This is a man who was the head of a conglomerate. He's now a business consultant, and the pressures were too much for him. He describes 
who has, who hasn't power. Well, we just hear his voice, and, and you, of course, can take off on that. I don't know of any situation in a large corporation where there's any executive completely free and sure of his job from moment to moment, regardless of what his contractual arrangements are. Corporations always have to be right. And when things go bad and business goes bad, they have to protect themselves and fire somebody and say it was his fault. We had nothing to do with it, but we had an executive that just screwed everything up. He's never really his own boss because he always has, he always has an executive. When he comes up to become, let's say, a district manager, he has a division manager. If a division manager, he has an assistant sales manager. An assistant sales manager, he has a sales manager, and on and on and on, until he becomes president and chief. Until he becomes chief executive officer and has a board of directors. Well, <clears throat> uh, I can't say that I understood all of that, Studs. There was a certain uh, accomplished incoherence about some mm. of that. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, was, he was talking about even the guy who was seemingly the head can be lopped off like that. Uh, that's absolute nonsense. Uh, no? Yeah, absolute. The, uh, uh, the organization looks after its own. And uh, uh, we've, we've seen this in the, in the case of the, of the banks and their South American loans, uh, or uh, here in Chicago, uh, loans to uh, Penn Square, uh, dubious enterprise down in Oklahoma. Uh, some of the people that were directly involved with those South American loans got a bad word from the boss. But the same people that made the loans are now discussing with the government and the IMF the means by which they're mm -hmm. bailed out. Uh, no, I would say on the whole, the problem of tenure in the top level of the business corporation is at least as good as that at Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, when something goes wrong with a company and it loses, isn't there someone who is the patsy? Uh, now, nowadays, if something goes wrong, it has to go terribly, terribly wrong before it reaches the top. Somebody down the line may get uh, chewed out, but uh, there should be no question. The integrity, the mm. substance of organization <clears throat> in the modern large corporation, mm. the integrity of position, yeah. the solidity of position yeah. is very great. So the hierarchy of power doesn't figure too much in that then? Well, it does, yes. I'm talking about the security of tenure. In the hierarchy of the corporation, you surrender a very large part of your personality. You su surrender your right of expression. Uh, you accept the discipline of the organization. You submit. But having submitted, uh, your position then is relatively secure. Uh, you have to uh, financially or sexually very uh, aberrant uh, or alcoholically pretty far gone before you get... Uh, uh, heaved out. You pretty much have to give up your personality. Though. You give up your personality, <laughs> but in having given up your personality, having given up your rights of personal expression, that's one of the reasons expressions coming out of the corporate structure are so, well, so eminently predictable. Having given up yeah. uh, a very large share of your personality, you have in turn a very large, a very yeah. large element of security under all normal yeah. circumstances. In, in your book, The Anatomy of Power, and John Kenneth Galbraith, my guest, 
there's a whole sequence dealing with regulation, and how compensatory power can be regulated. That is no bribe. It's bad to bribe a public servant. Condign power, that is punishment power, can be regulated as a First Amendment, say. But conditioned power can't be regulated. Well, I, I sometimes think that uh, if we were passing the Bill of Rights today, studs, there would be an incredible debate over it. And one of the efforts that would be to uh, make some regulation of conditioned power. We're very much concerned, as I, as I say in the book, about condign power, uh, punishment, and that is subject to, to on the whole, very rigid and, and, and basically very wise regulation. Uh, we're very suspicious of compensatory power, when it gets, particularly when it gets into the public domain. Uh, persuasion, condition power, going on the radio, going on the television is something, uh, going to the press is something that we protect. But if the Bill of Rights were up now, we would, uh, did it ever occur to you that we would uh, have a big debate about not allowing any subversive propaganda? Well, you know uh, that about uh, once a year, some newspaper in the country tries an experiment. You know, they, they send a reporter out on the streets and he shows the Bill of Rights to passers-by. And the great majority says, I'm not going to sign that. That's, that's uh, communistic or that's, that's subversive. The majority uh, say that. Yeah, well, we, I'm sure that's true. We'd have, we'd have a, a frightful discussion about that freedom of religion, no establishment of religion passage. Uh, we would have an agreement that the Congress uh, should not uh, promulgate any establishment of religion. Uh, except that it, uh, there should be time for prayer in schools. And, but uh, how do you reg see? Come back to that theme: the three kinds of power. But conditioned power, when a person has the, that's when people have the illusion that they have power. Is that it? The others who who submit to whoever it is. Well, uh, we do, we do have, as I, as we were yeah. just saying, a, a differential aspect, yeah. a differential attitude uh, to uh, these uh, three instruments for enforcing power. No question about that, and I think with, I think that is right. My instinct is to allow the maximum of exercise of power to persuade by anybody, by everybody. Uh, I'm very I'm wholly orthodox yeah. in my attitudes on that point, as uh, as on most others. The point that you make is an interesting one. Conditioned power, the power to persuade, does lend itself to a large area of illusion. Uh, they, uh, I say somewhere in the book, the, uh, the people who are associated with passing on the news, uh, the television anchormen, the people at the White House, the uh, journalists in Washington, have a solemnity of manner yeah. associated with the impression of the enormous power that they wield. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm a little bit suspicious of the extent of that power. For one thing, uh, we have so much information flowing out from the press, the radio, the television, uh, such a mass of it every day, that the mind doesn't hold a great proportion of it. So a lot of it, uh, perhaps fortunately, passes through from the ears, through the mind, into some great vacuum beyond, and doesn't have any residual effect. You know, it's a question of discerning, I suppose, chaff from wheat, too. It has no residual. Well, that's also kind of frightening, too, isn't it? I mean, there's a mass of information that comes through, and a lot of it just goes through is through a sieve. But then, if then there's sort of a vagueness generally, isn't there? 
No, I don't think so. I, I think that, there's the, that this does leave a certain solid residual. I hope that's true. Yeah. Uh, but uh, good Lord, if people are influenced by everything they hear on television, radio, the, uh, the press, as well as put, they pick up an ordinary conversation, uh, they would be uh, overwhelmed yeah, uh, sure. by the conditioning to which they're subject. That, and this comes then to the illusion. When, uh, uh, when something is going wrong in Washington, something is needed, uh, uh, Congress is being uh, obdurate, the first thing that happens is that somebody says to the president, I think, uh, I think Mr. President, we better have a speech on that. So 17 drafts of a speech are prepared and uh, eventually uh, the president uh, uh, goes on the air. And the act itself, uh, this is a point that McLuhan made, uh, the act itself becomes in some degree the substitute for the exercise of power. Uh, the medium, the message. Uh, yeah, it is assumed that having made the speech, everything is accomplished. Uh, whereas again, that passes in to our great mass of information, uh, which we daily receive, and probably has very little durable impact. And I deal with this in uh, what I call the illusion of power, the uh, most common manifestation of which, of course, is the politician who uh, knows that he is going before a particular audience, a working class audience, an ethnic audience, an audience of corporate executives, and so he uh, crafts out a speech which tells them exactly what they want to hear. They greet him with enormous applause, and he walks out assuming that this has been a major exercise of power, when in fact he's simply told them what they already believe. You have just led in perfectly to a piquant moment, and your book deals with this too. Compensatory power misused, in short, a bribe. And, of course, this politician himself doesn't have too much power either because he may be serving a strong, strong lobby. This is several years ago. The old Senator Burton K. Wheeler of Montana was describing the days years ago when he was fighting Anaconda Copper in Monta Copper Interests and an encounter with J. Ham Lewis, the very dapper U.S. Senator from Illinois. It's an incident from the 20s, but he's describing it in the 60s. We'll hear his voice, oh, I'd directly love to. concerned with your theme. But old J. Ham Lewis, this must tell you, old J. Ham Lewis came, came up to me when I was speaking, and he used to call me boy, and it made me mad. And he said, boy, give him the devil. And I said, uh, well, won't you make a speech on it? He said, no, I can't. Well, I said, you'll vote with me, won't you? And he said, no. No, I can't. I can't, I tell you, because I represent a damn bunch of thieves. Thieves, I tell you, who want to reach their hands into the public coffers and pull in the money out. He said, my God, he said, if I was a free man, I'd tear this thing limb from limb. Well, that I thought right <laughs> on the button, isn't it? <laughs> That's a... Oh, <laughs> A marvelous example of, of conceded uh, compensatory power. Uh, was Ham Lewis uh, corrupt? Wait, see, he's not denying. He's not so much corrupt. He was very dapper, you know, if we could describe him physically for a moment. He was the fashion plate. You know, he had that mustache, pince-nez, tie, stick pen, spats, cane. But 
He implies he was owned to some extent, that he was not a free man. Were I a free man? So we're coming back. Now, that can be, that, if found out, is regulated, as we know, isn't it? That's regulated. Oh, absolutely, yes. And uh, punishment, to some extent, is regulated. That is undue punishment. But conditioned power, come back to the, because that has the illusion, doesn't it? Well, as I say, conditioned power is, I want to be clear on this is the most important manifestation yeah. of power in our time, uh, reaching out to yeah. people's belief. And it is, as I say, the one that we do not regulate. But I would also be very reluctant to uh, think that we should regulate it. Oh, no, I'm, I agree with you. Yeah. Everyone should have a say. There should be a, a, yeah. there should be a, a universal soapbox. Everyone should have that. But it's also putting Muhammad Ali in the ring against a featherweight. We come to that. Let's take a pause for a moment. The matter of free market, you have that on there too. Uh, you, you go back to beginning. The book is also historical. Power as it was manifested at the beginnings of societies changing. Let's save that for a moment. We're talking to John Kenneth Galbraith, The Anatomy of Power is the book. And it, by the way, it's the style, as you know, is, has a lot of bite to it and a lot of wit to it, but mostly there's insight and Houghton Mifflin, the publishers, and we'll resume in a moment after this message. And so resuming with Ken Galbraith, The Anatomy of Power, you show how it's changed, how, where the power, the very beginning, feudal days, there was the baron and the lands, and there was a king in the beginning, and there was a church, the power, and then bit by bit it was shifting. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, I suppose it's fair to say in feudal times, uh, classical times, people didn't talk about power. Uh, certainly not in feudal times, because very few people possessed it. It was uh, divided as between the the barons, the owners of property, and uh, the church. Uh, these were the two great centers of power, and the fact that they were frequently in conflict is not at all surprising. And uh, the sources of power, going back to the three sources that we talked about earlier, personality, property, uh, and uh, organization. Of those three sources, well, personality was certainly uh, important in the, in the feudal society. You had uh, various emergent figures uh, who, uh, who come, whose names have come down in history. Uh, but uh, the dominant source of power was the possession of land, property. That gave, in turn, that won the submission of the serfs, uh, who, the, the peasants, who uh, uh, were thus given the right to have a living. They had no illusions of power because they were going to be that forever and ever. And they had no illusions. They were only, the only power that uh, they, they manifested was that over their wife and children. Uh, maybe if they were physically stronger, uh, frightened their neighbors a bit. Then, they, of course, the other uh, source of uh, power was the church, uh, which uh, was much more comprehensive. It had the, the personality of the Savior, the personality of God. It had great uh, property. Henry VIII, after all, uh, when he moved against the church, was mainly led to move against its great landed possessions. And uh, the church had by far and away uh, the most sophisticated organization uh, at that time or since. And then out of the three sources of power of the church came the uh, uh, instruments of its enforcement, uh, condign power, 
uh, which could be rather painful at times. It wasn't the Inquisition. Uh, if it didn't uh, administer serious, power, serious punishment in this world, it uh, gave the promise of some serious punishment in the next Hereafter. one. Uh, it had strong compensatory power out of its property resources, as we earlier mentioned, and it had uh, the enormous power associated with appeal to belief. In many ways, uh, in writing this book, I found the church and uh, the modern football team two of the uh, best ways of exemplifying uh, both the three sources of power and the three instruments of power. Because the modern football team was ma is machine-like, as indeed the church to a great extent. The organization was there, although the word organization wasn't used, but that's there. So we come to a change. Then came a, a change in the world with discoveries of new lands and new sources came a merchant class, a new emerging class. The rise of what economists or economic historians have called merchant capitalism uh, produced a uh, power structure uh, which uh, personality was important. Some of the uh, great merchant houses, particularly the later great merchant houses and banking houses, uh, the Fugers and the Rothschilds and so forth, uh, were, were people of uh, distinctive personality, there's no question about that. And they had bureaucracy, organization, uh, stretching out over the world. Uh, uh, but uh, their dominant uh, source of power was, of course, money, property. Property was also ships, goods. Goods, ships, goods in process, and, uh, their, and their places of doing business. So that was it. And, and then came the and, uh, and from there... From those three mm -hmm. sources of power, then came uh, their instruments of enforcement, of which uh, condign power punishment was not important, of, uh, of which uh, uh, in feudal times it, uh, the punishment of the recalcitrant serf down to modern times in Russia uh, was, of course, extremely important. The merchant uh, did not make great use of condign power. He made some use of conditioned power in the sense that uh, he established the mode of life, the mode of consumption, the mode of achievement uh, that was important for the sale of his goods. But overwhelmingly, his, his source of power uh, was compensatory power, his ability to buy people. Uh, and this then reached, anticipating your next question, this reached its highest form with the Industrial Revolution and industrial capitalism. Uh, where also one began to develop a, a much larger uh, scope for organization. The factory, the modern business, the, mod the uh, industrial establishment was a much more sophisticated, much more uh, complex organization than, than, than the merchants had. That, now we have a new kind of property, that is the machinery, the mills, the factories. That is right. Yeah. Uh, the machinery, mills, factories, and the uh, condition power, which uh, supported uh, the role of the capitalist, the role of the industrialist in the society. In some considerable measure, uh, economics, as it evolved uh, in the latter part of the 18th century from the time of Adam Smith on, was the great justification for the benign character of the uh, 
uh, industrialist and way, of the you, widest possible market. And you've, you've pointed this out in previous books on this one, the misuse of Adam Smith's uh, thoughts by those who call upon him. Oh, yes. They say fair they, people. Uh, Adam Smith is enormously misused by people who have never read him. Uh, because he was, he was not only a justif- he not only justified the, the industrial power, uh, his great arguments for the division of labor, but uh, Adam Smith also uh, was a marvelously amusing skeptic of the motivations of people. You have this wonderful phrase in a footnote. Smith himself made the point. I've never known much good done by those who affected to trade for the public good. <laughs> Have you heard the phrase variation this? There's little difference between doing people good and doing people good. <laughs> That's what Adam Smith was saying, wasn't he? Smith was filled, we'll take a minute on that, Smith was filled with marvelous comments of that sort of stud. Yeah, there's the one that I like, uh, that I've always enjoyed quoting which I think he may have got from Benjamin Franklin. Uh, He was a friend of Franklin's or an acquaintance of Franklin's. And he says in The Wealth of Nations uh, and some other connection, the Quakers of Pennsylvania, he says, have recently freed their Negro slaves, by which we may judge the slaves were not numerous. That's very (laughs) funny. So we're talking about changes now. Now they use the industrialists now, use condign power, I suppose that could be firing someone or, or breaking unions. Oh, yes, but condign power was generally available to the capitalist, either the threat of our reality of discharge, but what uh, was even more available was the police. Uh, if uh, workers had foolish ideas of forming unions and things of that sort, uh, the police or uh, down to our own time, the National Guard, were available for putting an end to that nonsense and did it with considerable violence. Right here in Chicago in 1937, of course. Absolutely, yeah. Republic Steel. The Great Bethlehem. Was that yeah. the, no, the, the Republic? Here, Republic Steel. The Republic Steel yeah. Massacre, yeah. But there's another... Now, conditioned power, how did it work in high capitalism? Well, the, the, the major instrument, we shouldn't be in doubt, was, again, money, again, the ability to buy submission, to buy submission of workers, uh, by submission of the community, uh, by the, uh, the, press. The, com- the company town was an example of that. But the condition power uh, was one which held uh, that the purposes of the industrialists, the purposes of the capitalists, uh, were basically the purposes of society. And uh, economic education, social education, uh, supported uh, very much the notion that there must be the absolute maximum of freedom of enterprise. And this was the conditioning which set the basis for the, the attitudes of the whole national social community. And so when you were the New Deal in Washington, Charlie Wilson said, what's good for General Motors is good for the country. Well, Charlie Wilson did not know that uh, he was saying something. He thought he was saying something original. He was saying something which had been the basic idea of the social conditioning of high capitalism for 150 years. It so was, this uh, is the social conditioning. Yeah. And we come, the conditioning is the key. We come back to that marvelous uh, phenomenon, conditioning. It's in schools, of course, we have in the very beginning, don't we? The uh, School Textbook Commission uh, 
specifies, uh, as you know, that uh, uh, the, the school textbooks must reflect uh, the ideas that are com- yeah. sympathetic to the uh, ideas yeah. of free enterprise. We say free enterprise. That in itself is conditioning, isn't it? The very phrase itself. And I suppose. I, I suppose if I could, if I could draw this idea. Put Muhammad Ali in his prime in the ring with a featherweight, a little guy weighing 115, 20 pounds, and say, may the best man win. That's pretty much it, isn't it? This was very, very strong, as you, as you know, in the last century. The whole ideas associ- associated with the social Darwinists were that you improved the race, uh, you strengthened the race by uh, a business uh, structure uh, which rewarded the strong, eliminated the weak, and perpetuated the best. Uh, took over from Darwin uh, by way of Spencer and William Graham Sumner the ideas of uh, social survival as the instrument of uh, uh, strength. So therefore, that man behind the mahogany desk, uh, that boss, is a much better man and the guy standing hat in hand. That's right, yes. Because uh, otherwise the guy hat in hand would be there. And if and his competitor, who goes out of business, disappears, uh, is part of the process by which you strengthen the best and get rid of the weakest. So we come to the marvelous aspect, another aspect of your book, and that's power. Those who have power, particularly organizing, deny it. It really is not my doing. I have nothing to do with it. That is also becomes a source of power itself, doesn't it? Well, this is, this is perhaps, I think I would say, Studs, this is perhaps the most important form of social conditioning that derives from my profession, from professional economics. Uh, something, a set of ideas, not unknown here by my friends and colleagues at the University of Chicago. The notion, the basic notion, is that uh, uh, the industrial enterprise is not an instrument of power in itself. It is subordinate to the market. It is the creature of the market. Everything it does is uh, in response to a directive, an instruction that is given it by the market. Therefore, it is essentially without power. And this is uh, then what the young are taught. This is in turn what uh, is uh, argued, not completely, but with some qualification in the textbooks. And therefore, Uh, The very process by which our social conditioning, our educational conditioning, denies that the corporation has power, acts as the shield by Mm. which, uh, behind which it exercises power. I hope that isn't too complicated. No, can't lose. The point (laughs) is, uh, that outfit, the outfit, if we may use that, can't lose. It it is therefore shrieved of sin. That is no responsibility, because it hasn't the power. But. <laughs> so yes, come to the illusion again. The, uh, you're you're a little bit more theological on this point than, <laughs> I, than I would be. <laughs> but that's so we come and as it comes back to the illusions again. They know power. The old phrase, power corrupts. You know, Acton's uh, absolute power corrupts. Absolute doesn't powerlessness corrupt too? Oh, no question yeah. about that. Uh, they uh, and I, <clears throat> I, you know, I'm I'm. Uh, slightly suspicious of the notion of the of the corrupting role of power. Society will only function with yeah. uh, uh, power and people responding to it. Uh, I try very hard at the beginning of this book to say that I don't want to bring any moral judgment to bear on power. We must have it. 
uh, what uh, we bring, we must bring the moral judgment to bear on the manifestations of power that we want, and those the and are those which we should feel obliged to resist. Got the very point at the very beginning. I, I interrupted you though. You're going to say some more? No, go ahead. Uh, the very beginning, we had that church group singing power, power. You went talked of Martin Luther King and Gandhi. Mm. There was a use of power as against powerlessness, that is benign, a use of power affirmatively. So what you're saying is power mm. must be part of the essential makeup of a person and a society, but it's how it's used. This is, this is, this is right, but the illusion of power in a context which, where people are really powerless is also something which we, we unfortunately must recognize. Uh, I think uh, we see many manifestations of that. I should make it a, b a bit more concrete, not be so abstract. If any of us see something we don't like, uh, what's our instinct? Well, to form an organization, uh, and that is undoubtedly sound. But our less, perhaps a less satisfactory instinct is to uh, make a speech or write an article. This is my own case. Yeah. Uh, if I see something in Washington that I don't like, and I, there are quite a few things of, that uh, do not uh, marvelously appeal to me at the present time, uh, my first instinct is to give a lecture on the subject. Uh, my second is to write an article on the subject. And I say to myself, well, Galbraith, you have accomplished something. You have done something. I think this is the in substantial measure the illusion of power. I was out speaking in a Madison night before last. Uh, quite a large audience and some of the matters we've been discussing earlier, just speaking for arms control. And uh, I think as if there was an element of illusion on my part that I was doing something when I was speaking, uh, particularly to an audience that largely agreed with me. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid that there was a certain illusion of power on the part of that audience that they had uh, taken an evening off to go and listen to Galbraith uh, rather than uh, bring uh, their views more strongly to bear on their congressmen and senators. Isn't that funny? A moment ago, uh, several moments ago, you were talking about a politician speaking to, say, working people, uh, saying things they wanted to hear, and there was the illusion of power in both cases. Here you are speaking for a group of peace uh, activists or would-be people. Again, illusions of power. So uh, we, we come back to or, why organization, I guess, is so I, 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 I learned about my own illusions from watching politicians. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you did. So we come back to power today, and as you say earlier, one aspect you worry about much today is military power, that so much part of the conditioning of our time that the political pundits or those we see on TV or write columns hardly question the expenditure there but they'd question immediately, where do you cut? And they say, social welfare, which ones? That's a given, that's a postulate, you accept that. Well, this is something, uh, this is a social conditioning, which I think in the, it can be said the present administration has, uh, uh, with which it has had some success. The notion that we are uh, hurting people uh, by food stamps, uh, hurting people by uh, aid to families with dependent children, hurting people by uh, providing housing subsidies, and that we're somehow strengthening the country when we uh, have these, uh, these huge arms expenditures. And uh, I would have no hesitation in saying this is a form of social conditioning on behalf of the military power, which uh, 
for which I have great hope that we can have some offsets in the future. Well, that's why your book is so good, because of the insights that are there, and mostly to make us see where the illusions are, where the reality is. And it's John Kenneth Galbraith, The Anatomy of Power is the book, and it's Houghton Mifflin Company. It's available, and thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Stud. It's uh, always a pleasure to be back here with you.